and the great egg. And now, coming to you live from Arlington, Virginia, and the 40th World Fantasy Convention, it's Jonathan Strawn and Gary K. Wolf with very special guests, Hugo, Nebula, and World Fantasy Award-winning authors and editors, Jack Dan and Gardner Dozwa on the Coot Street Podcast! Okay. Hooray! Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad that this is... Gee, if I'd known I was so fantastic, I would ask for more money. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I got a pocket full of change. You'll just have to be satisfied with us being impressed with you on your behalf. Uh, actually, I don't think either of us have ever won a World Fantasy Award. Jack has. You? you have? Yeah. You bastard. I won it with the beautiful Ginny, so I only get half, so it doesn't uh, count. Uh, hang on, not, not to sound like you know, the strangely entitled, do you mean of the people in the room, you're the only one who hasn't won? Yeah, I've never won a World Fantasy Award. You know, award. when I walked They into, should fix that. I would give you one. They're not going to. You can't no, and you know something? <laughs> he doesn't have any Hugos either. When you walk into his house, he is literally, I, mean, I remember walking, there was an entire table filled with Hugos. And I thought, you know, you, know, you could have at least I did given that, me one. I did that deliberately. By the end of my tenure at Asimov's, I had 15 Hugos. Uh -huh. And I put them all out on this one little table. <laughs> and it was specifically to impress the young writers that came over and they would like look at it. <gasps> no, it was to impress the young writers and to aggravate the old ones. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's enough for a bowling alley. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, and notice he's complaining about <laughs> World Fantasy. Oh, oh, yeah. I have won several of the ugliest Hugos ever produced. <laughs> well, that is true. The uh, the one from the Boston World Con a few years back, where the Hugo rocket is rising up through a hole in the toilet seat, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I thought the symbolism there was a little <laughs> odd. Especially the balls kept falling off. <laughs> oh, yes, well, this is a problem with Gardner. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's true. It, no, it the, is true. The Hugo, base, the Hugo base was covered with these little ball bearings and plastic, little plastic balls. And by the time I got back to my chair from the stage, my balls had fallen off. And I had to fish around with a stick under the chair to get them back. I hope somebody didn't start listening to the podcast just when that sentence began. <laughs> well, you, do, you do realize that this is the last episode ever of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I think, I, think, I think this will kill the podcast. Yeah. Well, then let's, yeah. let's go down in style. Because we've no idea what we're going to talk about, can we start? What, you guys have been working together for... 930 30, 40 years or something? Where did you guys meet? Started back in the Victorian era, I think. Uh, we actually met at a party at Anne McCaffrey's house. Was it? We first met at the Nebula where you hated me. Oh, that's right. You're oh. right. Before that, there was a Nebula Award banquet in New York that might have been 70, 1970. Mm -hmm. And Jack, had a, Jack, as you see now, is this suave, sophisticated... Uh, uh, dignified rabbinical figure that, that he is today. But in those days, he was going through his outlaw biker phase. So he was wearing black leather jackets and he had his hair slicked back in a duck's ass. And uh, he was. He, he that whole black thing never worked for <laughs> Neil either. He's still wearing the black leather jacket, you'll notice. Yes, yeah. I do notice. Uh, no, no, he doesn't have his hair slicked back in a duck's ass. Okay, now wait, now let me interject. Gardner, on the other hand, mm -hmm. was the skinny waif of a thing. That's true. Okay, <laughs> who was wearing 
He was wearing some sort of a was it flowers? No, 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 no. I had a head. I being being a good hippie, I had a, a white headband. Right. <laughs> I had on a flowered body shirt, and, and his and, and his pants were tied with a rope that kept coming loose, <laughs> and he kept trying to what? hold it together. I couldn't afford a belt. <laughs> <laughs> You know, when he broke his glasses shortly thereafter, he put a piece of cardboard in it with a smiley face. No, it was, it was an a, eye. It was a red eye. Was it a red I eye? I couldn't get my glasses fixed. One of the lenses broke, so I mm -hmm. cut out a little piece of cardboard and painted a red eye on it and put it up in my... And he had the talking shoes. Remember the talking shoes? No, I've forgotten the talking shoes. Well, no, shoes. the sole had come away, so they'd go flat, flat. Well, I kept, I kept stapling them back on. <laughs> okay, oh, so, this, this was, <laughs> so this was the, the first meeting yeah. of the two venerable authors. Well, I think... It, you were, I won't mention the name, but you were dragged up to me and thrust upon me by someone who I didn't like. Yes, and he, and, he and just I, radiated. I did. I said, look at this, this motorcycle thug with, you know, his duck's ass and his jacket. So we didn't like each other then. A few months later, we met at... Uh, a party at Anne McCaffrey's house, which I think was she was in Seacliff, was she? Mm -hmm. Wasn't it? Well, didn't she call us to? to yeah, we to, we to, had to, to go down the, to. The uh, we we had in those days. Anne McCaffrey was editing the Sephora Forum, mm -hmm. and Sephora Bulletin actually. And uh, I think it was the Forum. Was it the Forum? Yeah, it we had to go down. She she called. Any local writers who weren't too important to be bothered with this, to put under her. and who she knew needed food. Yeah, that's a very good point. And uh, she would have collating parties where you would walk around the table gathering up the pages of the forum and then, then it would get huh. stapled together. You guys are too young. Just like, no, Lucas used to do that within my, within yeah. my memory. Yeah. And so that's, right. that's when we met again. We, we actually liked each other this time. Maybe because I thought you had a cute girlfriend, which was better than... I can't remember who I was with. You were with Josie. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, we met and we had the collating party. We collated the, the 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 forum, and Jack's girlfriend and several of the other ladies that were there decided they would have fun with my hair. So I had very long hair at that point. It was actually down past my butt, and uh, they all braided uh, flowers and and pink ribbons and stuff into my hair and they and as long as there were women involved he didn't care he let them do anything to <laughs> they 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 put the, uh ribbons in my beard <laughs> are there any photographs of this in the, yeah so, there are and i had i had to not leave, that particular i had to leave that. that party in brooklyn and take the subway train back to manhattan at like three o'clock in the morning with with ribbons and pink flowers and stuff on my hair and he was, you were living on the Lower East Side. I was living on the Lower East Side. Somehow I got there without anybody killing me, which is, is kind of hard to believe in retrospect. And anyway... And it was really a dangerous neighborhood in those days. Yeah, the, the, the Lower East Side was where the Viet Cong used to send their troops for survival training before shipping yeah. them over to Vietnam. So I mean, I was visiting Gardner once, and this was on the Lower East Side, and we were in this store, and all of the this this gang came in with you know hammers <laughs> and remember yeah and guard <coughs> and there were two 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 
uh, it was an elderly couple who ran the store, and I, I'm looking at these guys, and they've got chains and whatever. And I said, come on, Gorky, time to leave. And he said, oh, no, we're going to stay here and protect them. Not so the mom. I meant protect the biker. <laughs> so I remember I walked over to one of the bikers and said, it's a really nice hammer you've got. Well, that sort of, that sort of diffused the tension when you complimented his hammer. <laughs> Uh, so this was this was hanging out with Gardner in those in the well, early at least, 70s. at least twice I was chased home by a gang waving hammers and axes and stuff. And fortunately, I was young and skinny and fast in those days, and I managed to just get into my apartment building and slam the door yes. behind me. Or if I hadn't, you probably never would have heard of me. And, <laughs> and then Gardner introduced me to the Guilford. He took to the to the, to the Guilford workshops. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I remember we went up, I think on the train together, and I was really nervous because there was gonna be Joe Holliman and Yeah, yeah. Well I had been I had been a veteran of a couple of uh, Milford workshops by that point that mm -hmm. uh -huh. Damon Knight uh, used to hold in his uh, big old Victorian mansion, the Anchorage in, in Milford, Pennsylvania. And I'd been to a couple of Milfords by that point. So uh, uh, I also got Joe Haldeman invited to one of them. Mm -hmm. And inspired by that, Joe and Jay, Joe and uh, me and, and his brother Jay Haldeman, Jack Haldeman, decided we were going to put on our own local area workshop based on the Milford workshops. And because mm -hmm. Jay lived in the Guilford district of Baltimore, they, we called it the Guilford workshop. And the, the key members were me and, and Jack and Joe Haldeman and Jay Haldeman and George Alec Effinger. And Ted White. And Ted White. Uh -huh. and yeah. Hartwell came to one of the later ones in, in, in Philadelphia. So Philford. Philford. That That's yes. right. How long did that go on, that, that Continue. Actually, that went on for quite a while. It went on for about five or six years, yeah. oh. and then Jay moved to, to Florida, and the, you know the whole thing fell yeah. apart. Well, and then well, then it moved to it, it moved to to Philly. Well, we did have Philly. two Filford workshops in Philadelphia. We held one of them at my house or my mm. apartment. I didn't know. Chip? Did Chip come to one? Or yeah, to Chip was at Chip yeah. was at one of Sammy Delaney was at one. Uh, Hartwell came to one. I think. Uh, James Patrick Kelly was at one. Greg Frost was at one. Uh, remember, remember Michael that? Michael Swanwick. Uh, one of the the workshops was held at Michael Swanwick and Marianne. Yeah, Porter's Michael house. Swanwick became one of the one of the, the central mm -hmm. people. And uh, so that was fun for a couple of years, yeah. and then that sort of faded away. You remember, remember the one the the, the, the Guilford where we would invite like a, a new person every year. And I can't remember whether it was a guy or a woman, but... Well, don't say their but, name. No, I, I don't remember. I can't remember their sex. <laughs> but they ran out of the room crying. Yeah, I do remember that. Sometimes sometimes workshops are not good for certain writers. So I would always prepared. go last because I would be the one... I mean, I actually learned lessons from that and a couple of other experiences that I try to always temper the criticism was something that they can hang on to so they don't feel quite so devastated by it. You know, like, oh, you've got really good uh, paper clips and this. So you'd have, but you had young writers coming there to try well, out. Well, we, we were young writers. We were young writers. We were all kids. 
I mean, I can remember, I can remember Gardner and I taking Joe Haldeman aside and saying, you know, Joe, if you keep writing this adventure stuff, you're never going to make it. That's right. You want to mount it. But then this is what After the New Wave is basically this done. This is post-New Wave. Post, yeah. It's about, we're talking about like 71, 72, 73, 74, We were certainly influenced yeah. by uh -huh. it. was still... Uh, well, I actually knew some of the, the I was sort of like the, the tag end straggly recruit of the new wave. Uh, yeah, because you first published in the late 60s, mid late 60s? 66. 66, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I was publishing in the world. Yeah. 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 And I just, I sold to several of the early orbits in about the 1970s. Yeah. I was in orbit six, uh, seven, eight. And I came in and later to, into the because it was when I sold my first story to Damon. Yeah. The next day, I sold all my law books and uh, quit law school. Yeah. And foolishly said, I am a writer. Yeah. Well, it hasn't worked out so badly. <laughs> no, it's, it's done. Yeah. We're still alive. I'm, I'm sure that if you had become a lawyer, you'd have several extra ulcers by now. Yeah. <laughs> And a yacht. <laughs> and a yacht. <laughs> when did you start collaborating on fiction? Because that's... Now, that was more of an 80s. That was, oh, okay. yeah. that was like, uh, I think we started in what, like 79 or something? Yeah, that, that was the Fiction Factory days. The Fiction the day. Factory oh. days. Which, which, you know, I knew as soon as you named us the Fiction Factory, that was a big mistake. <laughs> Why? The critics were going to tear <laughs> us to pieces. Well, actually, we had, we had an extraordinary run. It was... Yeah. Gardner and myself, Susan, Michael, Michael. We, we were all we were all like madly collaborating, and oddly enough, it we came were selling the, to the slicks. It, I mean, it, it, it came out of the workshop experience because yeah. we, we Jack and I would have had a long history of of meeting usually at my place, and we would workshop stories together. And at one point, uh, Michael Swanwick, who was a, a unpublished writer at that point, was Carrying there. A notebook. Was there? Yeah, well, the, the notebook. Say, this is going to be a writer. I, I knew he was worth taking notebook. seriously as a writer because he <laughs> carried a notebook with him everywhere he went, and he was always writing down notes about anything he found. And he still does to this yeah. day. He yeah. walks around with that notebook, and I said, "This kid probably has some yeah. stuff." But uh, he was hanging around at my place, and he just sort of got sucked he into the... He was a Susan's, I think, wasn't he? Well, I mean, well we both knew yeah. him, but, but yeah, and Susan used to play uh, hearts with him. They had a hearts game. Mm -hmm. uh, but he got sort of sucked into the workshop process, and we, he had uh, stories that he was working on he wanted to sell, and we ended up... Jack and I ended up going over a couple of those stories, and which he eventually sold. Was the Playboy story the one where I had fallen asleep? Oops. Whoops! Well, hang on a second. Uh, I will. I will vamp. Okay, vamp. And uh, okay, there we go. We're done. No, I remember. But but, but uh, the point I was going to make is that the the collaboration just sort of happened because it sort of evolved out of the fact that we were workshopping stories together. And uh, from there, it ended up to, well, you know, I know what to do with that yeah. story. Why don't, you know, you do this? And yeah. then we started actually working on each other's yeah. stories. Yeah. And I said, well, Michael, you know about this. You write this section. And Jack, you know about that. You write that section. And usually what would happen is it was sort of an unwritten rule, which is why we didn't kill each other. As Michael and I almost yeah. did with ships, and <laughs> Ellen had to uh, <laughs> uh, 
had to intercede. Uh, is it, Gardner would do last cut, so it was sort of like. Well, I, I just felt I could sit and type anything, I, and it would get. Fun. I had the most editorial experience, and I was, you know, uh, working in a, an editorial advisory faction, fashion on the the stories in the workshop. Anyway, so yeah. it sort of became and, natural and it, that. Yeah. You know, so I got the last cut, so I would say, well, this page sucks, so we're going to redo this. But I think with the, the dinosaur story, I think I started it, and then I went to bed. And, <laughs> and then he, you said you well, wrote a story is, this while is, you were asleep. This, <laughs> this story has been told several times. Uh, we were having a, a discussion with Jack about this story he wanted to write, and he couldn't explain what it was about. Except that, that hasn't changed. <laughs> <laughs> it was going. To, it was going to be very profound. I remember you, you said that several times. It was going to be very sad. You have to understand that, like now in those days, I was a really pretentious idiot, <laughs> and it was going to be you know like really significant and sad, and it was going to be about this old man, and you were you couldn't explain what was going to happen to him, but you kept saying how you know significant this was. Going to be. <laughs> and uh, eventually. <laughs> Michael, Michael got tired of listening to this, so he went over to the typewriter and he put it. That's how he put a piece of paper on the typewriter and he wrote this paragraph, which was mocking Jack's yes. talking about the profundity of the old man's story. Well, Jack was so stupid; he sat down and thought it was great. He put he put in a piece of paper and he typed this paragraph about an old man sitting dejectedly on a park bench uh, with uh, uh, per pterodactyls. <laughs> going around his feet, picking at the garbage, and he was looking gloomily at the at the pterodactyls. And and Jack went over later and said, "Wow, this is great! He's writing my story for me." Yeah. And I sat down and started going black, yeah. and then I left it. And so I got up in the middle of the night and I finished the story. And Michael thought it was too stupid, so he didn't want to have anything to do yes, with it. Yes, I said, well, Michael came over the next day, and I said, well, Michael, since you wrote the first paragraph here, uh, we'll cut you in for a third of the, the proceeds of the sale. And Michael did say that it was too silly. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. And then we sold it to Playboy for the most money any of us had ever made. And I got a call from Gardner. I was living in Binghamton. And Gardner said, you just sold the story to Playboy. And my response was abject silence. Was, it was like, <coughs> it was like, my I was a deer in the head. No, the, if Jack had actually written his story, it might have been a lot more significant and profound than the piece of crap that we What was out. the title of that story? Because people were going to listen to this podcast. At, what was the title? Well, my title was 40 and Phenomenon, but they wouldn't go No, we didn't that. use 40. I think it was called The Change in the Weather. Uh, it was called The you you wanted that you wanted everything to be forty. <laughs> well, I actually came up with the the really horrible joke at the end after about three pages of him walking through the city with all sorts of dinosaurs going by, and there's no explanation <laughs> of any of this. And he dodges the brontosauruses on Broadway, and he you know goes finally gets back to his 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 walk up the tenement apartment in the Lower East Side and. Here's a big crash of thunder, and he looks out the window, and there are dinosaurs falling out of the sky. And again, obviously, and he sighs and says, well, at least it's not raining cats and dogs. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
And there was yeah. another. There was another great. And story. for this masterpiece, we got like four thousand dollars. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, we were we we were we were selling these. They had we were selling them like Penthouse and Playboy. There was never any sex in them. No, it was, it was funny because uh, we were selling everything we wrote just about to Omni, Penthouse, and Playboy for the, the top fiction yeah. rates anybody was paying for. Who was editing fiction to Playboy at that time? <laughs> Kathy that, Green was editing Penthouse. And Alice Turner. Alice Turner, Alice Turner was Turner. editing Playboy, okay. and Ellen Datlaw was, was, was editing was Omni. Yeah. But the funny thing is nobody else was from the field was sending these magazines anything. Hmm. We were about the, the only writers. And well, Lucius, Tom Tom Dish, I think, and Lucius, I think, and Lucius. Well, he but, started later. But yeah. most of the most of the the field writers, genre writers, were not sending anything to these magazines. So it pretty much had the the field one, to ourselves. It was what I mean, kind of the way this stuff happened. I remember Gardner was telling us about a friend of his who 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 was having these hallucinations and. Yeah. Hmm. He, w he was seeing clowns in strange places and he like, was going into the bathroom and opened the door and there was a clown sitting. Well, the idea drove us crazy. So Susan and I started riffing on the idea. And the next day we started writing it. I remember finally Gardner got so frustrated, he came into the room and he said, this was my idea. I'm in this too. So we all sat and started typing. Yeah, I had been carrying that idea around for like. He said, This was my idea. Seven Susan years. And I or something. <laughs> what did we sell that? Was that Penthouse? That was Playboy. It was called. Yeah, it was Playboy. Yeah. yeah. It was called The Clown. The Clown. Yeah. Yeah. But, and in fact, I have, uh, we have all had our photographs in Penthouse. You tell that to yeah. people and they say, well, you missed July or something. <laughs> but, but I guess what, but this went through the mid-80s to the late-80s and then sort of that was the end of the fiction factory. Sort of, for... sort of, sort of, sort of faded out at that point. Well, that was the... No, I, I became editor of Asimov's and that took mm -hmm. up most of my time and uh, Jack went to Australia and it also sort of fell apart. <laughs> but I mean, but things, I mean... Things like this okay. kind of do have a natural. So, so basically, the narrative arc, I guess, for your your fiction collaboration is you, know, you meet in the early nineteen seventies. You go to writers' workshops. That leads to the Fiction Factory. Yeah. But in parallel to this, possibly even better known to most people, is the fact that starting with nineteen seventy two, you start collaborating as editors. What? Well, we started collaborating as editors earlier. Didn't we? No, it was not earlier than seventy two. I'm not even sure it was that late. It, it was. It was day in the life. That's mine. That okay. Was no. Oh, so that, well, your first was Future my, Power? That was my first book. Okay. okay. Was, Day in the Life was my first anthology. I sold that, and I shouldn't have sold it. It was ridiculous that I did, because hmm. a totally unknown writer with no track you record. That to, you sold that to us. Sold that to Victoria Shock and yeah. Harper and Rowe. And if you look at the back cover, if you want to see a picture of Gardner in the old days, there's a picture of him looking weighing 10 pounds, Oh, I, I waited at least a hundred in the kitchen. No, it was taken in the kitchen of my incredibly shabby six-floor walk-up apartment on the Lower East Side between, on 10th Street between Avenue A and Avenue B. Right. Yeah. And uh, I was not taken on the toilet. I am sitting at the kitchen table. That's right, you were eating. But behind me, it's you can toilet. see my toilet. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> you see, I mean, he was really living it up. Yeah, Absolutely. I was living the high life in those days. But we started, Jack and I started doing anthologies a couple of years after that. The yeah. first one we did was Future Power. Yeah. 
And then we sold Aliens to Dave Hartwell at Pocket. And after that, we started selling them to, to Ginger, Ginger Buchanan, Buchanan at yeah, that's, Ace. That was, that started the magic. And that we did about 30 of them for her at Ace. And yeah. then, then they sort of lost interest in publishing them anymore, so we didn't uh, do any more. Yeah, but we had, how many, what if we had like a 20-year run? Yeah. Those yeah. were like all the exclamation points. The exclamation points, points, which were not ours. No, Ginger uh, insisted on the exclamation points. We tried taking them out. When you first started the editing of anthologies, though, was it competitive at all? Because, I mean, you had had A Day in the Life out. Yeah. He had Wandering in seventy-two, and the, but that was like two years oh, later. Wandering Stars, yeah. yeah. And you know, Wandering, Wandering Stars is still this great benchmark well, had the anthology of Jewish fiction. I actually had to coax him into it because uh, Wandering Stars had been a success, and that, of course, success makes Jack nervous. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he had people were asking him if he wanted to do other anthologies, and he said, "No, I don't want to be known." As an as an editor, I want to be known as a writer. So he was a couple of years in there where he wouldn't do any anthology, yeah. even though they were asking him to do it. They weren't asking me to do it, but yeah. eventually. See, uh, at which point we come to find out that Jack is not the brightest of the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you were also doing what Junction and Star Hiker and those books at yeah. the time. Yeah. Ah, should I tell them the Star Hiker story? Which one? <laughs> Jack, he did, Jack. Excuse, he did this at my wedding, okay? <laughs> did I do that at your wedding? Well, no, it was, it was Pete uh, called, my, my best man called him, and he told him the cycle slot story. No, this is not got anything to do with cycle slot. Oh, right. I never heard. <laughs> <laughs> she, she's, she sounds very nice. Uh, uh, Jack came down to... to Philadelphia one day and he was there for the weekend and he said I've got this great idea I'm going to write this series of YA adventure novels and I'm going to write one every three months God he remembers everything and I said uh, well you know maybe you should be cautious about that because it might take you longer than three months and he said no I'm going to Knock him out every three months, and like four years later or something, he had finished the first one, which was, which was Star Hiker. I sold to Laser Books. It was Roger Elwood, Laser Books, and then it went to Bob's Merrill, and then it ended up at Harper and Rowan. By that, I because I, I got bored with the idea, so I kept sticking all of the stuff that interest. Finally, I ended up with this young adult book that was so dense that no one could read it. <laughs> Except Marion Zimmerbrand. At any rate, he did. He did. He didn't rip one of one of these out every three months. No, so that, that's sort Gardner of had my did. number. And it used to be fun. I mean, when we were doing when we were doing anthology in those days, we didn't like have the com computer, so we would sit there and 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 Gardner and Sue's apartment and do word counts, which was oh like, god, yes, I mean, hour after hour adding up, uh -huh, and it was yeah. very cozy. I haven't like done a word count on a story for years because today I get the electronic files and you and just says click and it's but in those days, you, you, and we we had all of these very cool methods of, uh, of well, as I recall, they actually when. Uh, uh, Lester Del Rey was leading Dutton. Lester Del Rey was editing a Best of the Year series for Dutton. And he'd done a couple of volumes. And he decided he didn't want to do it anymore. And yeah. uh, mm -hmm. based on the fact that, that 
wandering stars had just come out and it was hot. They actually called Jack up and asked him <laughs> if he oh, wanted <laughs> They called Jack up and asked him if he wanted to take over this Best of the Year series. And Jack said, no, I am a writer. <laughs> I am not going to sully myself editing anything. However, I know this guy. That's what he said. He said, but, you know, you should ask Gardner Dozois. And so they did, and I said, shit, yeah. <laughs> and then he destroyed your life in a single exclamation. I mean, I have been editing Best of the Year anthologies ever since. This was like, I took over with the, the sixth issue of that series, yeah. mm -hmm. and the Dutton series, which nobody knows that I did. Yeah. Everybody thinks I started my Best of the Year career with the Blue Jays. Well, actually, actually I, had, I had a secret reason. I knew if I took out the best of the year, I'd have to read everything. <laughs> oh, well, there is that. <laughs> but the numbering go. The numbering is from your editorship. The current yes, numbering. Oh, for the Blue Jays slash St. Martin. Right. Yeah. Yes, those, those are mine. But I before I started the the Blue Jays slash St. Martin series, mm -hmm. which is now up to thirty two, by the way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I had done previously six other best of the year anthologies for Dutton. And these are, these are almost totally unknown. They were brought out in hardcover, and although I tried and tried to convince them this was not a good idea, uh -huh. they put the same really crappy illustration on the cover every year. It was what looked like a cricket lighter with, with, with some sort of weird-looking flame yeah. coming out mm -hmm. of it. And one year, they would do it in blue, and the next year, they would do it in, in so yellow. So people would think they already had blue. And the next year, oh, so yeah, really. you know, oh, the cricket lighter one. I've got this. And yeah. so they didn't sell very well. But, uh, but, but, but even, I mean, for you back in the mid-'70s, you're, sort of, you're writing, you're writing workshops. You've now inherited the best of the year, which... I'm sure it was somewhat less work in 1976 than it is oh, yeah. in 2014. A lot less work. Right. There's the whole classifications of, of uh, markets that exist yeah. now that didn't exist. You see how prescient I was? You see? Yeah. Well, this is why you know this is why I look like this, so <laughs> decrepit and broken down. You know, I'm actually only 30. <laughs> if I had to, if I had Taken Jack's advice and not become an editor, I would look uh, look much better now. See, well, I look nineteen. <laughs> Absolutely, so. but well, but well, before all of this, before the, I started doing the anthology, I had done a lot of slush work. Yeah, uh, I was a, a young freelancer in New York. I had already gotten a little bit of a buzz because of I had been publishing stories in Orbit and New Dimension. So I was sort of mm. like thought of as a... In fact, I got to be the, uh, the what we used to call the kumquat Hagendas of science fiction <laughs> for about a year in there. The kumquat Hagendas. <laughs> What's that? It's that term... He's, he's making... You see, we've got... It's like something from Dune. No, no, it's that, that term from Dune. The quasi-heteract. Quasi oh, that's it. Yes. Well, we couldn't pronounce that, so we called it the kumquat hagen <laughs> I don't I know, know how to pronounce it because that's the way Linda Hunt pronounced it in the movie. <laughs> this is how I'm going to pronounce it ever after. Yes. But, uh, you know, so I was being known as a uh, hot young writer, and I had... Uh, Stayed at Damon Knight's house in Milford for a couple of weeks when I got back from being overseas in the Army. And they had had lots of parties there, and he had introduced me to everybody. So I did have contacts at that point. So when they needed various slush work done, 
I was the one they would go to. They, they hired me to read the slush pile for Galaxy, Worlds of If, Worlds of Fantasy, and Worlds of Tomorrow magazines, which are all UPD, uh, I think it was UPD Incorporated or something like that. But they had the four magazines, and I read slush for all of them. And I also broke the infamous Galaxy Backlog, which no one remembers at this point, but which was a big deal back in like 1970, which uh, Fred Pohl had left and uh, they took them like six months to get a new editor or something, which was Jake Jacobson. And in the meantime, this monstrous pile of thousands of manuscripts <laughs> oh, okay. had piled up. So I went in there and read them all. Was That, that was Isaac Jacobson? Yeah. 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 In fact, everybody that was in that office with me is now dead. So I can I can say anything I want about what went on there, and there's nobody who can naysay me. Yes, Lester Del Rey and Judy Lynn and I used to strip naked, paint each other with racing stripes, and dance around the maypole. And so it's one of the few things that are good about nobody can nobody can nobody can say we didn't. But and then basically at this point, you're basically a novelist who and short story writer who edits edits somewhat. You, on the other hand, are moving the other direction. I mean, you're you're editing, but you're moving into novels, fiction. That's more your focus. Well, it was it was just what was in my head. Yeah. I mean, we were both we were both writing short stories, and you you were doing well. You were getting involved. When did you get involved with Asimov? So well, that before I actually took over the the best of the year from. Uh, from Harry Harrison, or at about the same time, not from Harry Harrison, from Lester Del Rey, or at about the same time, yep. uh, this local Philadelphia area fan called George Sithers, who was an mm -hmm. old-time fan, uh, the people at Davis had approached uh, Isaac Asimov. They wanted to do an Isaac Asimov magazine to go along with their Alfred Hitchcock magazine. Huh. And, uh, and George Isaac had said they should get George to edit it. So they said, all right. George had never edited a fiction magazine. And I had had all this slush experience. So uh, he came to me, and we both lived in the same city. He came to me and said, would you like to be my associate editor? And I said, okay. So for about a year and a half, I worked on the first four or five issues of, of Asimov. So I actually was in on the launch mm -hmm. of Asimov. And then uh, it became clear that uh, my real working relationship with George wasn't really working out all that well because he was buying the stories I told him to reject and rejecting the stories <laughs> I told him to buy. So I said, well, this is silly. So I dropped out of there. And then a decade or more later, when Shauna McCarthy left uh, as editor, she uh, said, well, you should get Gardner Dozois. So I came back in as an editor of the magazine I had helped launch like 10 years before. So that was kind of weird. See, now, in the meantime, while all this is going on, I've got Gardner was my private editor. I mean, I was getting, starting to get really upset when he started to become famous because he was editing other people. Well, Jack, I, Jack would come down with that. I remember especially this with the, the man, the who, man melted. who melted. Jack would come down and he had written this huge mass of manuscript. And we would go over and I would show him places where he could cut individual stories from it. 
and he would cut the stories and sell them to like Omni. Yes, but what, he, what he's not telling what I did is I, I came to Philadelphia, or was it Philly then? Yes, yeah, yeah. Philly, yeah. With a manuscript under my arm. And I basically, I, I said the deal was... I need, you know, I need you to look at this man. I wasn't going to leave. No, you didn't leave. <laughs> I didn't leave until he ended. You were there the for about a week, as I recall, sleeping on the couch with the cats walking around. <laughs> well, it was better than the old days, because when you just had the water bed, because I thought it would be cozy, I used to, like, sleep in the middle, you know, which, of course, all they wanted me to do was go home. Sure. Because I would come to... But these visits... I mean, I remember I came to visit once for, like, three days, mm -hmm. and... We ended up at the Milford. You called Damon because I had the car, and, and Gardner and, and and Joe Haldeman had had money. Well, what we no did what we did first was uh, you came for four days or five days or whatever again with a package of manuscripts and yeah. <laughs> for my and then, then I said, well, we're doing a Guilford workshop down in Baltimore, so why don't you come with us? And so we went down to the Guilford. We did the Guilford workshop mm -hmm. in Baltimore, sure. and then I said, well, you know, I've got to do the Milford workshop in Michigan next, and you have a car. And Joe has to go too, so why don't you drive us out to uh, so, to Michigan? So we had this. So you got home like a month and a half later. <laughs> and I called up Damon and said I was bringing a pet, <laughs> and I was really nervous about meeting Damon. Well, the the, the funny thing, and I, I think about this sometimes when I first met Damon Knight. I was in awe. He was here was this age, mighty age patriarch who had a beard like down mm. to his chest. Twenty years younger than. And I was. thought he was. I thought he was like as old as the hills. And when yeah. I met him first, he was about twenty years younger then than I am now. Yeah. yeah. So that that really makes you. Know. <laughs> but I, I would be in him. He's one of those people who I never met. But when I listen to Gene Wolfe talk about him, and I think, who could intimidate Gene Wolfe? Uh, but apparently, well, Damon got the psychological jump on Gene. <laughs> Actually, Gene, there's there very few people who could intimidate Gene because he's maybe the smartest person I've ever met. Yes, he, Gene, Gene really is a genius. And I have met a couple of pretty smart people in this field. Tom Dish was extremely smart. Yes. Mm. Chip uh, Samuel Delaney is ex extremely smart. But I can sort of understand how their minds work. Do you remember Chip's a more a, a metaphorically, metaphorically a metaphorically a reference? That's what he said about the. the he was the, looking at a manuscript of Jack. Oh, that was the man who melted. It's criticism. So I made a T-shirt. He said this is metaphorically a referential. <laughs> <laughs> and and Mary Ann Porter, Michael Swanwick's wife, in honor of uh, that statement. That night for dinner made metaphorically a referential chicken. Yeah. <laughs> As you can tell, these were good days. They were good. They were, these were the green like... days. But you know, just to finish this point, with with Tom Dish and and uh, Samuel Delaney and the, the other smart people I'd met, Joanna Ross was very smart. Uh, I could Jack sort of, was very Jack smart. Jack was very smart. I could sort of see how their minds worked. Uh -huh. Their reasoning process went from A and eventually it got to Z. And you could sort of yeah. see the steps. But you can't with Gene. His, his reasoning process goes from A to 
X and then back to N and then over to, you know, uh, C and then to A again. Yeah. And then it's, you really can't. And with a few Greek letters thrown in that yeah. you don't yeah. really know. You really can't yeah. follow his reasoning process. Now, I mean, it's amazing because he's, he's this lovely, cuddly guy who I'm in total, who you can't oh, yeah. help you can't. but be, you know, but be in awe of. And what Gardner did, because he knew that I was nervous about meeting Damon. The first thing he said, hello, Damon, this is Jack Dan. He's really afraid of you. <laughs> so, of course, Damon then went on to do... Well, that's how you sold Wandering Stars, too, if you remember. We went to a Nebula banquet in New York, and we were uh, sitting around with Victoria Shockett, who at that point was the young editor of Harper and Row, just taking over Harper and Row. And both of us had a crush on. And, well, she was very cute. Yeah, she was. And, probably still, uh, is, probably still is very cute. And, uh, <laughs> although she's now Victoria Von Lustbader. Which well, yes. Yeah. Well, uh, when she married Eric, who was making $80 billion <laughs> dollars a minute, yeah, yeah, right. Gardner and I are looking at saying, <laughs> But anyway, Jack was telling me at the table that he had this idea for an anthology, but he was, you know, he was afraid to he was afraid to tell anybody about it, so I yelled across the table, Hey, Vicky, Jack wants to sell you an anthology, but he's afraid to mention it to you. <laughs> you know, life then was really full of humiliation. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you sold the book I to her. The book. And that's a historic anthology, really. <laughs> not just because nobody had really given much thought to Jewish science fiction and fantasy, but nobody had given any thought to any kind of, like, Ethnic or cultural identity, specifically. Now, I mean, now you've got post-colonial science yeah, fiction about African American, and there's a, and there's a new Israeli ideology uh, yeah, that's world things. But at, at, at that point, because uh, <laughs> even though there were a lot of writers, some of whom I guess didn't even identify as Jewish, who uh, who, who were in the anthology, Harlan was very proud of that anthology. Yeah, he did. Um, he did a good. He did. He did good work for that. Yeah, that was. I'm looking for Kadak. Yeah, yeah. Jeez, that was. Wow, that's a funny story. That's a good. That's a. This guy's got a. Well, I, I did. I also, and I, I didn't realize what sort of a monster I was creating here. Jack and I were at a science fiction convention. Might have been a Lunacon or a Philcon. I'm not sure which one it was, but the, he had been put on his first panel. And Jack was petrified. You were literally shaking. I was shaking. You yeah. saying, I can't do this, I can't do yeah. this. And, and the feet, and he, what I didn't realize is my feet were going like this. <laughs> they had, okay, I thought I was, because they had like a sheet over, but what I was doing, I was seeing the sheet, <laughs> the audience was seeing the sheet going all over the place. And so I talked to Don, I commented on, I said, you'll be swell. You know, and so he did his first panel, and now he, like, flies all over the world giving lectures and <laughs> yes, speeches. Well, you know, that's see what you did? You know, I don't fly all over the world giving lectures and speeches. Well, we had this discussion. Who Who is it who gets... It's Michael. Michael Stoddard. Michael gets invi invited to Poland. Yeah, he Carter was, and Jack get invited to... A Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. <laughs> and that's on a good day. No, he's been invited to speak, Michael, at China, Croatia. Uh, he's in Poland at the mm -hmm. moment. And we get like uh, East Aurora, Tennessee. <laughs> Look, I'd be happy for East Aurora, Tennessee. I'd get to the stage. You've both been editing for more than 40 years. Oh, geez, that sounds terrible. <laughs> in in, in when what was it at a particular moment, if there was one, that made you fall in love with it? Because you wouldn't just do it for business for 40 years, would you? 
Well, yes and no. The reason I started editing so much was I couldn't write fast enough to support myself as a writer. I've always been a very slow writer, and I would starve to death if uh, if I was dependent on just my writing, but they would pay me for editing, so it was a way to uh, to keep myself going. But also, I've always, I've always liked... I mean, I, before I ever got to a point to do it in reality, I would put together imaginary reprint anthologies sure. in my head. I would say, oh, I'll use this, I would use this, this, and this. So there's always been sort of a... Uh, for me, editing has always been mixed up with the, the desire you have when you're a young fan who's just started reading science fiction. And the first thing, when you hit something you really like, the first thing you want to do is go out and show it to somebody else and say, hey, look mm -hmm. at this. This yeah. is really great. Yeah. And that's what I have been doing ever since uh, with Asimov's and with the best of the year. So it, it was my natural inclination to bring excellent material to the attention of other people anyway. So it, that sort of worked out well for me. For me, it's like, it, it's, it's, it's sort of like writing. I mean, especially with original anthologies, that you're putting them together, and the stories are coming in, mm -hmm. and it starts forming, you know, this 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 organic kind of entity. And and lately, it's also been pol you know political. I mean, when when Janine and I did the, the dreaming down under anthology, mm -hmm. I mean, I wanted to show the the, the wonderful work that was yeah. coming out of Australia. Yeah. To a larger audience, because it, it, it wasn't really on the radar then. Yeah. Uh, but I, I was, I always wondered if that, which is another historic anthology now that I think about it, because it did what you said it was supposed to. Well, that, and that was that. that was the in, intention in, in our little, in our small way to you know to try to open the door a crack. Although I have to, I, I kept thinking, and I never asked you this, Jonathan, that 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 title has to be a title meant for Americans. And nobody, nobody in Australia calls themselves Down Under, do they? No, no, so, no. It, it was, it was, it was actually meant for the U.S. and, and Great yeah. Britain. Well, the Australians knew who they were. It was the larger well, audience that wanted to. I, I think actually, well, you you part, part of the function of that book yeah. was Australians didn't know. I mean, very few Australian writers of genre fiction got any kind of profile in the country at all. You know, and even in a specialist bookshop. There would be the, like the little shelf of shame down the back of the shop that had the Australian stuff mm -hmm. on it, with a few you know, sort of exceptions in children's literature and that kind of thing. Even someone like I me, mean, no one knew P.L. Travers was Australian at the time, mm -hmm. you know. So no, there was no real concept of it. It's only sort of starting in the mid nineteen seventies with Damien Broderick and a bunch of other people that people started paying attention. And mm -hmm. the first dreaming particularly brought together this pool of writers that hadn't been seen in the country, particularly, never mind outside it. And it happened to coincide with the, you know, the development of a major new imprint at the time, and it made it all work out really nicely. So, you know, and it was a major book. I mean, when I look back at your editorial career, there's like these three, Jack, there are these three tentpole books, you know. There's Wandering Stars, there's In the Field of Fire, which is a genuinely great book, yeah. and then there's Dreaming. Yours, Garda, seems to be sort of occupied by the monolith of the best of the year. You know? Yeah, well, if I'm remembered for anything after I'm dead, it will be for editing the best of the year series. And doing it for, what, four times longer than anybody else ever did. Well, I know what well, I'm doing. Well, I am working right now, a lot right now, since uh -huh. I'm sitting in your room at a convention, but currently I am working on uh, best of the year 32. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when you consider that there were six Dutton titles before 30, that, right. so I've been doing it for 38 years. Well, I've worked out absolutely what I'm going to be remembered for. Yeah. It's going to be what you are partly responsible for, the man who melted Jack Dan. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the old, yeah, right. Yeah. You know, it, it said in, uh, I think it was Tor.com, that, that I had come up with that game. And Greg Feely got very indignant on Facebook and said, no, he had actually invented it. And I've talked to people in England who claim they invented it. Yeah, well, I don't think well. anybody really knows. No. I, I certainly For people who don't it. know what the game is, it's a title and an author that mm -hmm. fit together as... The sheep look up John Brunner, or yeah. uh, you know the man who melted Jack Dan. The green cloud. You know that there's a Carter. band called <laughs> The Man Who Melted Jack Dan. <laughs> 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 you look on YouTube. <laughs> so, so this is it. This is what you spend your life trying to write profound fiction, <laughs> <laughs> and what do you get? Well, <laughs> I had, I was, I certainly didn't invent the game. We mm. were at a, a, a science fiction convention in the very early seventies. And everyone was playing this game at one party. Who was the first person to, to come up with it? I have no idea. Well, the same was with cyberpunk. You, well, you I, didn't, I didn't coin the word cyberpunk either, although uh, I had been attributed to having uh, coined the word cyberpunk. And Bruce Bethke got very upset about this and said, no, he had coined the word cyberpunk. But actually, he hadn't done it either. Because Pat Cadigan told me that <laughs> it had been in use in computer hacking circles for several years before uh -huh. any of the cyberpunk work actually had printed. Now, all I was about the best I can claim is that I helped popularize sure. yeah. the word cyberpunk because I did a thing in one of my best of the year anthologies naming all the new writers who were coming along. Uh -huh. Then, Bill Gibson and, and Bruce Sterling and, and Luke Shiner and all those people who I said, who are sometimes identified as cyberpunks, but I never, I never claimed to. Well, you, but you did coin the usage that everybody used because even that Bethke story, apparently the story really wasn't anything about yeah. uh, what we now think of as cyberpunk. And if Pat Cadigan's right and it was a term used in uh, computer, that's, that's not I think the it word. Could, that we now use. I have also been credited. I think it could be said that he popularized. Well, yeah, it, it, that's it, all it, I've it, ever claimed. I never claimed or coined it. Popularized, and yeah. as far as I'll go, I have also been accused of coining the term sharecropper, which I didn't coin either. Yeah. I am sure I read sharecropper for the first time in a review somebody wrote in Locus. Might even have been you, for all I know. Could have been, I don't know. But uh, they, they, I was arguing. I never made it up. I, I, I was I'd arguing say, with somebody that they insisted I had coined sharecropper. No, I didn't coin that either. The one apparently yeah. I did coin, and Michael actually went to the trouble of, of doing all the research to establish this, was uh, the term AI for mm -hmm. artificial intelligence. That's uh, a big one, actually. Yeah. Used, yeah. used in fiction. Now, the reason I used it because I had read nonfiction with the term in it. So uh -huh. when I was doing an early story that had a you were the first to apply computer, to I was uh -huh. the first to apply it to fiction, apparently. That is true. So let me introduce My story, Chains of the Sea, uh, I meant I think mm -hmm. I used it for the first time there. Well, what I was going to interject, and in fact, I was thinking of Chains of the Sea, is 
is a, Gardner has really got you know this enormous reputation as an editor, but his fiction is absolutely his. I mean, Gardner's short fiction is some of the best work mm-hmm. that yeah. has been done in the genre. Absolutely. I mean, I yeah. I first heard. I mean, he's your not going to argue with me here because he's no. got good stuff. Yeah. But, <laughs> I mean, come on, the first time I heard your name really was picking up a book by Michael Bishop. Ah. Uh, called Light Years in Dark. Yeah. Dinner Party. Which had Dinner Party in it, which yeah. is just the most amazingly wonderful story. Yeah. Beautiful. And, and, in like, fact, and I think it, it may also have re- reprinted body. Morning Child. Yeah. Well, my, but this actually is a lost cause at this point. I mean, my, no, it's not. my no. work as a writer is already forgotten. No, it's not. No. And no. after I'm dead, it'll be completely forgotten. <laughs> no, what, only, the only thing anybody will remember about me was that I edited the best of the year... And maybe that I used to edit Asimov's. That, that's going to be You see, added. and this, right now what you've heard, people in podcast land, is the essence of Gardner the pessimist. <laughs> Hello, yes, the earth will end tomorrow. No one likes me. But, 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 I'm, I'm going to agree with what you're saying in the sense that people in the field, film fan historians, are going to remember you as, as the years. But by and large, readers... Who don't? Because the year's best volume twelve or volume thirteen is not on anybody's radar. You can't even get it. If you don't have. Yes, you can. Well, okay, you can. But they're all available as e-books. But on the other hand, speaking of fiction, and this is a story I'm only mentioning because I only read it about a month ago, and it's in Rick Wilbur's anthology of baseball stories. The story is called "The Hanging Curve," which is just terrific, and it. You know, it, it could have been in the New Yorker because it's just one of these. Yeah. No, it couldn't. Well, <laughs> now it could, and, um, but there's no explanation really at all for what happens, and it's it's. it's no, it's a very silly story. But it's. I was watching a baseball game and I got bored, so while I was sitting there watching the baseball game, it suddenly struck me that it would be interesting if the baseball stopped moving in the mm. middle of the air, and that's what that where that story came from. But it's one of those things that may have been an absurd idea. And yeah, it basically, in the story, the baseball stops in midair and nothing can move it. I mean, it's, it's like <laughs> it's just a, some kind of gravitational center of the, of the, of the universe. But, you, but the way that works is you just follow it through uh, absolutely deadpan and you know, have people react to it the way they would. Which is why I mean that's the kind of story which if you had been you know, from another country would have been easily seen as magic realism. The T. Corga Henson boils science fiction. Do you still write? I occasionally. I haven't done much the last couple of years. Because I mean, because you've been what four or five stories out in the last decade, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, I told her I was slow, and I, I have the perfect out. And people offer it to me all the time. They say, "Well, you didn't you didn't write much because you were so busy editing Asimov's mm. and wow. took up the time that you had for writing." But I'm not really sure that's true. I'm not sure even if I didn't have the Asimov's jobs, I would actually have written any more. So that shows you the, the yeah. slowness of my production, which is why I became an editor in the first place. Because otherwise, I mean, I've been about as poor as you can get in this country unless you're sleeping on a hot air vent. Uh, well, he was convinced. Of- that that was going That's to be the still, end. That could still be the end, Jack. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, we know that. We know that. <clears throat> that could easily be the end. Well, we'll just... It almost was when the economy crashed back in 2008. 
Yes, you know, someone... I sort of skated through that, but it was mm -hmm. a dear thing. Someone reminded me how stupid I was. I was at the convention, they, and I had not even remembered this. Remember when they were worried about the meltdown, and yeah. Jack was going to drive to Philadelphia and pick them up. Uh, i gotta give, I got to give you some background on that. We're, we're talking about the here. we're talking about the we're talking about the Three Mile Island yeah. uh, meltdown, yeah. and uh, I was in Philadelphia and I hadn't heard anything about it when uh, the phone rings and I picked it up and it was Gregory Benford calling from California and he said, "Get out of Philadelphia now! Don't pack, just leave." <laughs> and so I got Susan and and our son and we went directly to the bus terminal. And the only place I could think of to go was to Jack's house in Binghamton. <laughs> so we went and we sort of hid in Jack's house for a week or so, waiting fun. waiting for the nuclear disaster oh, to, to strike Philadelphia. But you know, when Greg Benford, who's a physicist, tells you get out of town you now, you don't <laughs> argue with uh, Anything to avoid a dinner invitation. Um, I was going to say, part of me wants to say, don't encourage him. Because no. Now that, now that Greg he's knows a, he can do that. He's a lovely guy. You stop that. I, he is. I, he wouldn't mind. Well, he saved me from nuclear death. Absolutely. So I'm not going to argue. Right. And you, of course, retired to Australia when you met your now wonderful, beautiful wife and entered one of the most productive periods of your career. Yeah, it was funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I introduced well, you to your wife, too. Yes. <laughs> that was at a party at uh, Charlie Brown. Jack had just gone through a very bad breakup. Uh -huh. At which point he announced to all of publishing that he was going to be celibate for five years. And I said, no, you're not. And I, I packed I, at that convention, I said, the Wilcon in San Francisco, I said, uh, what you need is to get laid, Jack. Uh -huh. And so there was this beautiful... Australian woman there, and I introduced Jack to her. And you do realize that Janine is now going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't say you were supposed to get married and move to Australia. That was like you, you sort of ran away with the, the, the horse there. Yeah, well, I guess it took. So I, four months later, I, I had sold up and uh, was living in Australia. Yeah. And the uh, same party where you. Yeah, no, uh, no. Sa same convention. Same convention. But not the same party for oh. my wife, yeah. Was it? Yeah. Okay. Didn't you know that? Oh. Yeah, Marianne and I met at, uh, at Con Francisco. And that the party you were at was the, the official party that Charlie held for Con Francisco. God, this was, this was... Well, you know, Charlie used to get really angry at me because I... After that, I started calling him Cupid, and he really did not Ooh, like that. No. <laughs> this, this, is, this is the late Charles Brown, yes. about, who hated being called Charlie, too, although we all did. Yeah, partly because we knew he hated it. <laughs> but Janine, this is Janine Webb, was, you know, had been an international critic of... of she was of an the, academic. Yes, yeah. yeah, so an academic, and when I got to, uh, to Australia... She really did pave the way, you know, and you know, introducing me to you know to the writers and and and, and 
Now, when I when I first knew you, you used to be called the Hermit of Binghamton. Well, George Martin was the one that started that. <laughs> uh, but I really was. I mean, you, you know, know, always you stayed in Binghamton like ninety percent of the time, except to come down and show me a manuscript every once in a while. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but no, I, you know, for for all the shtick, I, I am, you know, I am hermetic. I mean, if if left to myself, I, yeah. you know. Well, the well, difference is now you have a farm. Yes. The hermetic now you're the, her the Hermit of Foster. The Hermit of Foster, that's right. <laughs> well, it, it, it still strikes me as odd that, that I knew you, you were this, this little Jewish boy from Binghamton, New York, and now you're the gray eminence of Australian science fiction. <laughs> well, what both of us, what we both did, which was very smart, is A, we stayed alive, and we got old, so now we're eminences. <laughs> How do you get to be a great eminence of Australian science fiction when you're writing novels about James Dean? You fool them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean he's not Australian? Jack would be the least science fictional writer to be an eminence of science fiction I know. Oh, explain that. Yeah, I, I, well, I'm trying to figure out, I, I'm parsing it. What I mean is, science fiction is, is in some of your work, but not all of it. Oh. Um, and I guess that a lot of the focus of it extends beyond the heart of the field into, into a different direction. I mean, yes, you've written books like Star Hiker and the books with Jack Holden and everything else. Right. But when you look at books like, you know, The Rebel, like uh, Carrie Coo, like Memory Cathedral, you know, these really are books mm -hmm. that maybe come from the field to some degree, but really move out beyond it yeah. and have a broader kind of a focus. Oh. And even though I know Counting Coo happened to have been written before you went to Australia, mm -hmm. it was published uh, you know, after right. And so it really is sort of in that kind of period of, of your career that this became really clear. And ironically, maybe it's not sort of, as you say, you become known as this great eminence of Australian science fiction, which really is about 40 people in a bar, but still. Mm, right. um, but we like it. But the, the work you're actually going to start publishing at this point you know, is almost completely not directly science fictional. The, the, the editing remains that way, but not the writing. Look, I, I was, I've been very lucky in that Basically, I write what I want, and I've been, I've been lucky enough to have you know publishers who've allowed me to do that to move around genres, and somehow I've managed also to you know to carry an audience that you know that, that are insane enough to, to mm -hmm. follow that. So I think it probably is. I think what Gardner is getting at probably is uh, is the editing, you know, dreaming. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and you know, and as as we all do, we you know we do workshops. We bring up writers, so that you know we we we've all had an influence in in, in that way. Because I love the genre, and that's that's my that's my center. Well, this is why what I think we should do is you and I should edit an anthology, Jack. We'll get Gary to write the introduction, and we'll make you write a story for it. Ah, good luck. I think that's what we you should know, do. <laughs> you know, you do realize, okay, yeah. he is not kidding, and this is going to now happen. Not remotely. <laughs> not remotely <laughs> am I kidding. No. Okay, this is... On that cheery note, we could, I mean, we're at the end of our hour. We mm -hmm. honestly could talk for hours and hours more, and I think probably we should find some way to do it. Well, no, but we should thing. give the audience a break and not... <laughs> 
make them listen to hours and hours more of this. Well, no, I think we should force them to listen to hours. <laughs> we, have award, we have an awards banquet to go well, to. Well, that's what I was going to say. We should remind our listeners we are at the World Fantasy, which is not by itself a problem. The problem is that we have 10 minutes before the open bar yeah. opens before oh, the banquet. Yes. Which, but I do want to know, because we know, we know that Gardner is, is working on volume 478 of the year's besters. But what are you, are you doing, Jack? What's your next big well, project? I'm, Okay, well, there's there's two. One thing I'm doing is insane, and the other thing I'm doing is is probably normal. A, I decided at the ripe old age of 39 to get a PhD. So I'm doing a thesis on all on alternate history from a writer's perspective, and I'm also working on a on, on a novel called Shadows in the Stone, which is what I swore I would never do, the equivalent of a fat fantasy. What university? Queensland. Okay. UQ. Yeah. Sorry. All right. So maybe you're you're gonna be the next one to be picked up well, by no, you, HBO. No, no you know what you know what <laughs> you know what happened? It's crazy. Every, all my pals are getting PhDs, you know, Sean Williams and so I thought, well, yeah, I'm getting one. I guarantee you that hell will freeze over before I will get a PhD. Well, let me make a caveat. They're paying me to do that. Yeah. So hell might not freeze over before you think that <laughs> that's a, that's a good That, idea. by the way, is one of the differences between Australia and the United States. Nobody will ever pay anybody to get a PhD. No. Yeah. So say, this is what's good about being a great eminence in Australia. Yeah. We'll have to bring you over, Gargi. No, I would just be a has-been in Australia. Oh, oh yeah, yes, yes, and, and, <laughs> yes. Gardner's had a terrible career. He has not won any awards. No one pays any attention to him. I think I'll and, eat some worms. <laughs> I wonder if they have worms at the party. Let's. There's only one way to find out, and the only way to find out if there are worms at the party is to get to the party. Okay. So. So thank you most sincerely, Gardner and Jack, for joining us. I hope you get to continue the conversation sometime in the coming months. Good luck this afternoon with the World Fantasy Awards. Oh, thanks. I'm not going to win, though. Yes, you see? Yes, no, he's not going to win. Because he never, <laughs> you see, he never wins anything. No, I've, never, I've never won a World Fantasy Award. <laughs> and I'm not going to tonight, either. <laughs> on that note, on that, thank, thank you very much. much. And I'll talk to you next week. Thanks Gary. Absolutely.